You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's Saturday, April 24th. I'm Lucy Suchak. And I'm Marta Biino. Columbia University graduate workers will vote this week on whether or not to continue striking. So the idea that now that we have a contract, we're getting this much worse compensation increases, I think this is just totally unacceptable. Businesses are getting creative and ditching cash. There was a dentist that uh, offered me toothbrushes, film shooting, some drawings uh, from an artist. I got offered the song. And a new miracle drug is saving lives. I didn't realize how sick I really was until I started feeling better. But not everyone can access it. All that and more on Uptown Radio. But first, this news. From Columbia Radio News in New York, I'm Camille Bond. The FDA and CDC have resumed the use of Johnson & Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine. The vaccine was put on pause last week after six women aged 18 to 40 developed a rare blood clotting disorder. Together, both agencies have full confidence that this vaccine's known and potential benefits outweigh its known and potential risks in individuals 18 years of age and older. After a thorough review, the FDA may add a warning label for women under 50. Over half of all adults in the United States have now received at least one vaccine dose. The daily average of new cases is still over 59,000 nationwide. New York, Michigan, and Florida are reporting the highest numbers each day. Weekend protests are planned in Columbus, Ohio, where 16-year-old Micaiah Bryant was killed by a police officer on Tuesday. Organizers are calling on the Biden administration to open a civil rights investigation into the case. There's a separate march happening in Tampa, Florida today after state lawmakers passed a controversial new anti-protest bill. Opponents say the Combating Public Disorder Act will have a chilling effect on free speech by upping penalties for throwing objects like water bottles, yelling at police, and gathering in groups of three or more. President Biden has declared the mass killings of Armenians by the Ottoman Turks more than a century ago a genocide. The historic declaration is set to further strain already frayed ties with Turkey, a longtime U.S. ally and NATO partner. At Biden's International Climate Summit this week, many world leaders set ambitious new targets for cutting carbon emissions. Biden committed to slashing U.S. emissions by half within a decade. And the commitments we've made must become real. Commitment without us doing it, it's just a lot of hot air, no pun intended. Meanwhile, Democratic Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey reintroduced the Green New Deal this week to ire from some conservatives. Republican Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene likened it to the Communist Manifesto and has challenged Ocasio-Cortez to a televised debate. It's unclear if Ocasio-Cortez will accept. And in California, Governor Gavin Newsom has announced a plan to end hydraulic fracking by 2024. This is a part of a larger plan to eliminate oil extraction in the state by 2045. Earlier this morning, SpaceX's Falcon 9 rocket arrived at the International Space Station with four astronauts on board. NASA live-streamed their arrival. Pilot uh, Megan MacArthur of Crew 2 is next, being welcomed by the Expedition 65 crew members. <laughs> and- and- Shane Kimbrough bringing up the rear. Though we can't even hear audio in there, you could really feel the excitement just by the looks on their faces. The astronauts will spend about six months at the station before returning to Earth. This is Camille Bond, Columbia Radio News. From Columbia Radio News in New York, I'm Nico Petuto. If you live in New York City and haven't received a COVID vaccine yet, well, it just got much easier. 
Mayor Bill de Blasio said all city-run sites are now open for walk-ins, no appointment necessary. You can just walk up and get vaccinated. If you're 16 years old or older for the sites using Pfizer, 18 years old and older at the sites using Moderna. The American Museum of Natural History is the city's newest vaccine site, which promises to make it a memorable experience. To find a location, go to vaccinefinder.nyc.gov. New York may soon become the first U.S. state to make pandemic workplace rules permanent, that is, if Governor Andrew Cuomo signs the recently passed HEROES Act into law. Demand for libraries to reopen has intensified now that many businesses are letting New Yorkers back inside. From next week on, movie theaters can increase to one-third capacity, while museums, zoos, and aquariums can go to half. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office announced this week it would stop prosecuting prostitution and unlicensed massage services. The choice signals a growing movement to decriminalize sex work. British socialite Ghislaine Maxwell made her first in-person appearance in a Manhattan federal court on Friday and pleaded not guilty to federal sex trafficking charges. It's been a year since she was arrested for her ties to Jeffrey Epstein's underage sex trafficking ring. David Boys is a lawyer for Epstein's victims. As all of you know, this has taken a very long time to get here. They've been fighting this for literally decades, and they've been actively fighting it for seven years now. It was almost seven years ago that we brought the first lawsuit against Ms. Maxwell, a civil lawsuit. So they're looking forward to a resolution. Today, it's mostly sunny with a high of 70 degrees, although there's a chance of showers in the early afternoon. Sunday will be cooler, cloudy with a high of 60 degrees. This is Nico Picciuto, Columbia Radio News. After weeks of negotiations, Columbia University has reached an agreement with its Graduate Workers Union. The union has been on strike since March, and members will now vote to decide if the deal is good enough. John Edelman reports. When members of the Graduate Workers Union put their strike on pause and entered arbitration with Columbia, they hoped that their demands for higher pay, better health care, and a neutral third-party grievance process would be met. After six bargaining sessions, an agreement was reached, but some of the union's members think their leadership missed the opportunity created by the strike. I think the bargaining committee was tired, and I think they also were afraid of a situation where Columbia would make their lives difficult. That's Jared Sachs, a fifth-year Ph.D. candidate. He thinks they should have held out a bit longer. Rewind to the strike. Graduate workers spent three weeks protesting, picketing, and garnering endorsements from politicians, including Senator Chuck Schumer. Before the bargaining committee called off the strike, we still had a few weeks in the semester left and then a few more weeks of grading period where our strike threat was at its strongest. So if we had gone through that, we would have pushed Columbia into a much better agreement. But that's not what happened. The bargaining committee paused the strike and decided to enter into arbitration with Columbia. The deal they made was criticized by some members at a contentious general body meeting this Monday. Among them was Ethan Jacobs, a third-year PhD candidate in philosophy. He believes that the agreement's pay increases are too small, between 2 and 3 percent each year. That sounds great. It sounds like a significant increase. But in fact, if you look at the past seven years of Columbia's increases to compensation, the average is close to 3.75 percent. This is before a contract. So the idea that now that we have a contract, we're getting this much worse compensation increases, I think this is just totally unacceptable. 
Jacobs argues that the raises may actually be even smaller than they look, especially when you consider inflation. You also have to take into effect that when this contract goes into effect, we're required to pay 2% gross union dues. Others, like Michelle Jang, a third-year PhD candidate in economics, see it differently. She thinks it's important that the contract guarantees the raises, even if they're small. There's a difference between having 3% increases that are based on the goodwill of Columbia, which can be you know, taken away anytime, uh, and having codified increases. She also doesn't think that going back on strike would improve Columbia's offer. We have to be realistic. I don't see a lot of incentive for Columbia to give us these things. The pound of people who are picketing this year was 700 to 800 uh, per week. And by week three, people were exhausted and there was definitely a bit of a stall. All in all, the tentative agreement is similar to the contracts negotiated recently by other graduate unions, including those at Brown and Harvard, according to William A. Herbert, executive director of the National Center for the Study of Collective Bargaining in Higher Education and the Professions. This is a first contract, and so it's, it's the beginning, not the end, of the collective bargaining relationship. And so this sets a platform for building more. Whether the union decides that it's a platform that they want to build on remains to be seen. Votes on ratification of the agreement are being accepted through April 30th. John Edelman, Columbia Radio News. Federal lawmakers have extended the pandemic eviction moratorium to September 1st, but not in New York City. Here, it's set to expire in one week's time, despite many renters still struggling to make ends meet. Satish Nori, attorney in charge of the Legal Aid Society and an advocate fighting for an extension, explains what the end of the moratorium will mean for New Yorkers. I wanted to ask you, first of all, can you explain what is your role at the Legal Aid Society and what is the Legal Aid Society? Yes, the Legal Aid Society is a 150-year-old law firm for low-income New Yorkers. I work in the civil practice, so that means I represent people in the borough of Queens who had problems with their housing, benefits, immigration, education, and other issues. Okay. And can you explain where does the situation stand right now with the eviction moratorium? Yes, that's right. The current moratorium expires on May 1st. So that is next week. Could you quantify how did the moratorium affect tenants during COVID? Yeah, so the first thing that is so important as a premise is that housing and public health are tied together. If people are not safely housed or if they are on the street or they're living with friends and relatives because they got evicted, then COVID can spread. And there have been many studies by public health experts and epidemiologists who've said COVID spreads if evictions take place. The second thing is that in New York City, rent is the number one issue that people face. Most people pay more than half of their income towards their rent every month. And so when something like COVID hits, many thousands of people can no longer afford their rent. That's crazy. I didn't know that people paid more than half their income in rent. So 
in relation to this, um, do you know roughly how many people has the moratorium uh, helped? Well, one way to look at it is in a given year, there are 200 to 300,000 housing court cases filed in New York City. And of those cases, about 10% result in evictions. So that's about 20,000 families, so more than 20,000 people. So this past year, because of the moratoriums, there were only eight or nine evictions for various reasons. That means 20,000 families were not evicted, maybe 100,000 or more people. So can we expect that all of these roughly 20,000 will be affected and will possibly be evicted when the moratorium ends? Yes, that is a big fear um, that many of these families will be uh, back in court, the cases will go forward, and there will be nothing to stop the evictions from taking place. Okay, it was uh, great to talk to you, and thank you for being with us today. No problem. Good luck. Thank you. They call it a miracle drug. It's been two years since scientists created the first medication that successfully treats cystic fibrosis, a devastating disease with a life expectancy of just 37 years. But while New York patients are rejoicing, across the border in Canada, the drug remains hard to come by. Anna Gordon reports. Despite being born with cystic fibrosis, Upper West Side resident Kevin Dwyer worked as a professional ballet dancer and even ran the New York City Marathon in 2012. But his disease would eventually catch up with him. Cystic fibrosis causes sticky mucus to build up in his lungs over time. Each year, it would get more and more difficult for Dwyer to breathe. You know, I, I ran the marathon at like 50% lung capacity. And then through the next few years, it just started to dip and dip and dip down to about 30%. I was getting tired to fight, too tired. And... um and it got to the point where I was recommended to go on the transplant list. Doctors only use lung transplants as a last resort for patients who are on the brink of death. And then I got on Trikafta and everything changed. Um, like the first few days was like the great purge where I just coughed and coughed everything up. And then after that, my coughing stopped. And since then, I do not cough. I literally just do not cough at all. My lung functions have gone up 10%. I've gained 30 pounds, I think. I didn't realize how sick I really was until I started feeling better. And, I, you know, there, there was a couple of days this summer where we were on the beach. And I just was sitting there watching, like, my daughter and my wife playing and I was so thankful to the scientists who created this drug. In the U.S., a combination of Medicaid, Obamacare, and a generous copay assistance program have made Trikafta available to most Americans. But across the border in Toronto, Canada, Jacob Jeremillo still cannot get Trikafta. On a daily routine, it's you know almost three hours of nebulizations and, and physiotherapy. 
the older I get, the more damage there is in the lungs and the longer it takes for me to bounce back. And oftentimes I don't really regain the lung function that I used to in the past. Yeah, just slowly, slowly draining. <laughs> Waiting for Trikafta, really. What's something that you can't do right now that you would do if you had Trikafta? Think about having kids with my wife would be top of mind. You know, I, I don't think I would want to have a kid if I'm still staring down death in the eye. Trikafta costs $360,000 a year per patient, and the Canadian government, which negotiates maximum prices that a company can charge for a drug, has so far failed to negotiate a price with Vertex, the company that makes Trikafta. Because of this, Canadians are unable to get the medicine, even through private insurance. After seeing the success of Trikafta in other countries over the past two years, Jaramillo and other Canadian CF patients are frustrated with their government. It's fair for government to not want to pay excessive prices. But if the rest of the world has figured it out, then there's no excuse. You know, this isn't a problem that has not been solved. I reached out to the Canadian Agency for Drugs and Technologies in Health which helps determine drug prices in Canada. But they told me that they couldn't comment because they are currently in the process of reviewing Trikafta. So instead, I reached out to Canadian economist Christopher McAbe, who was able to explain to me the government's perspective. For expensive drugs for rare diseases, because they're small markets, once you've got something licensed, you've got a monopoly. Their experience to date is that the company have been very reluctant to accept prices that the Canadian provinces think they can afford. And the basic science, a lot of the basic science was government funded. They, they invested their own money as well, but there is no doubt that a lot of fundamental work was done with government funding. In a written statement, Vertex responded saying that the company has invested $7 billion to date on medications for cystic fibrosis. Currently, one person in Canada dies every week from this disease. One thing is clear, whether the fault lies in Vertex or the Canadian government, cystic fibrosis patients are the ones paying the price. You're listening to Uptown Radio. There's more to come. Stay with us. You're listening to Uptown Radio. We may be seeing more kittens in the city this year because of the pandemic. They don't go like three, four, five, six. They three, six, twelve. Like they go up like oh that. Oh my god! It's not like two plus one plus one plus one. It's two, four, eight, sixteen, thirty-two. Not, it goes up like that. So it's yeah. very bad. More on that soon. But first, Lincoln Center, one of New York's best-known performance spaces has had empty seats for more than a year. But now, the beloved institution is preparing to launch outdoor performances for summer. It's part of a new initiative, Restart Stages, that's reinvigorating the arts. Lincoln Center commissioned set designer Mimi Lien to redesign the sprawling concrete plaza into a welcoming green space. It opens May 10th. I spoke with Clive Chang, Lincoln Center's chief strategy and innovation officer, to find out more. 
Hi, thanks for joining me today. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so tell us about The Green. How did the project come about? Sure. So um, obviously this past year has been really challenging and a, a really trying time for many and, and especially for the arts community. And so we also realize that it's a really great opportunity for reimagination and reinvention. And The Green specifically was a project inspired by the genius Mimi Lian. And she literally is a genius. I mean, she's a MacArthur genius, right? Um, <laughs> we had invited her to a, a brainstorming session to really help us think through how we can reimagine our outdoor spaces. Um, and this idea of the green was actually her idea. So she, at some point in the conversation said, you know, what would be so amazing is if we could transform the plaza into a place that isn't, you know, concrete and, um, uh, transient, like you, you don't just come and walk through it on your way to a performance. But what if you actually could linger? What if you actually could sit down and enjoy a performance? And I'm interested in um, the fact that she's a set designer. Can you speak about how her work as being a set designer has kind of influenced this project that isn't really a set, but it kind of is, right? Oh, absolutely. I think Mimi would say, yeah, it's just an outdoor set. You can imagine the most iconic uh, part of the campus is, is where the fountain is. But in the center of the plaza is this giant expansive uh, space. And now imagine that entire plaza turned into a green space. Do you see this trend of utilizing outdoor spaces for the performing arts continuing even after we move events back indoors? Absolutely. Um, I think that we take this um, particular moment and this particular initiative of Restart Stages as almost like a large scale pilot of what might be done on a more permanent basis. How do these installations affect the way audiences experience live performance? It does, is it different from experiencing it inside? Yeah, I think, um, you know, in a beautiful way, uh, experiencing these performances outside brings a much more candid uh, experience, right? It sort of reminded you of the, the beauty of the, all of the colors and the stripes and the sounds and the sights and the smells and the whatever of, of the city. So I do think it, it's a different experience and I do think in some ways it's very refreshing to do it this way. Why is the green important right now? Art helps to heal, art helps to bring community, and even if all you do is, you know, bring your favorite book to the green, spend half an hour, and maybe also surprisingly get delighted with a pop-up performance that happens to happen while you're there. I hope that that experience will help heal some of the tr collective trauma that we've all gone through. We are basically going to carve ourselves a new normal. Um, and I think a lot of what we're doing now has a place in, in the new normal that we all are gonna create together. Thank you so much for being with me today. A great pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Since the pandemic hit, small businesses have had to get creative to stay afloat. In New York City, some have turned to the ancient practice of bartering, with businesses swapping goods for toothbrushes, furniture, and even art. I spoke with barterers to get a sense of how it works. On a warm spring evening in New York City, 
when it's 75 degrees outside, the temperature in Gabriele Lamonaca's apartment reaches the hundreds. From his small but mighty oven in Harlem, he has been dishing out pizzas every single day for almost a year. Since he was a teenager, he says, he's been working in the food industry with one goal in mind. My obsession and my dream became to open up a Roman-style pizzeria here in New York. La Monaca, an ambitious pizzaiolo from Rome, had been saving money and planning to open a restaurant. Then the pandemic hit. He lost his job. He felt like he had nothing to do, except maybe one thing. Which was making pizza. And he did. To make the most of his lockdown time, he created an Instagram profile. He shared videos of recipes and experimented with toppings. Mozzarella, roasted bell peppers, sausage, burrata, and pistachio pesto. Toppings everywhere. In four months, he earned 5,000 followers who asked to taste his pizza. He thought about starting a home baking business, but soon realized it would be a long bureaucratic process. So he took up bartering. There was a dentist that uh, offered me toothbrushes, film shooting, some drawings uh, from an artist. I got offered the song. It was a great way for me to get my product out to people, to let them taste it. I kept doing this, looking forward to my uh, future pizzeria. La Monaca's unique concept went viral, and it was even featured on the Italian national TV. But this idea, it turns out, is not exactly new. Bartering has been around since the beginning of time. This is Lisa Ellerby, the founder of Superbiz, a retail barter company in New York. She explains that bartering has been practiced on an industrial scale for almost 100 years. Retail barter companies are networks for small businesses to trade goods and services without cash. And prior to the pandemic, it was a growing industry. In 2019, we traded over $18 million. Our goal for 2020 was 30. And we had hit every single goal until 2020. Obviously, there was a challenge there. They didn't make that goal because of the pandemic. In fact, they lost 20%, but only 20%. Amidst economic turmoil, Ellerby says bartering helped many businesses stay afloat. You know, members, they were able to save cash on PPE. We had sold masks by the caseload. Accountants helped members get PPP approved for them. That, I think, is our biggest accomplishment. Bob Baga, the CEO of BizX, another retail barter company based in Washington State, says that the difficulty of the pandemic sparked new interest in cash-free trade. Over 250 new members have joined the network of 7,000 since March 2020. That's an increase of almost 4%, a great success when you consider that the economy as a whole shrank by more than 3%. People are looking for creative ways to do things. We're seeing a, an interest from both new people coming to the network as well as uh, people that were kind of inactive in the network are kind of waking up and they are starting to take advantage of it. There was a hotel that traded rooms for a renovation, or a winery that exchanged wine bottles for furniture. Other businesses moved online, or shifted to a catering model. The pandemic showed us cash isn't the only way to get a hold of essential things. Barter can help. And for some, it can also be a delicious experience. This is uh, incredible. What's in it, the salsiccia? I'm so happy. Marta Bino, Columbia Radio News.
It's kitten season in New York City, and cat lovers are panicking. Normally, feral cats would be trapped, neutered, and returned to the streets. But COVID has complicated things. To find out more, I spoke with rescuers who say there's been a spike in the kitten population. Joanne Amatrano is a caretaker of a cat colony in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. The colony sits in the alleyway between two buildings. Cats hide inside wooden boxes and under metal grates until it's time for dinner. Every night at 7 p.m., Joanne walks down from her office overlooking the colony, greets the handful of cats waiting for her, and spoons wet food into their bowls. Look, baby, I have a new dish for you. Look. Boo-boo. Look at that. <laughs> there were times I didn't know if it was okay during the winter, and I would be calling, baby, where are you? And I would watch as a paw came out from under the side of the building, like, here I am, <laughs> like a horror movie or something. <laughs> the handful of cats at this colony are all spayed and neutered, which means they can't reproduce. But that's not the case for other colonies across the city. To help keep the numbers of stray cats at bay, rescuers use the trap-neuter-return method. Trained rescuers trap the cats, bring them to available clinics to be fixed and vaccinated for rabies, and then release them back into their colonies or put them up for adoption if they're friendly. It's a massive effort, and it was going as planned, but the pandemic has made it more complicated and more expensive to get cats fixed. Organizations like the ASPCA normally run inexpensive spay-neuter clinics, but those clinics were put on pause during the early months of the pandemic, and they're still now only operating at limited capacity. Megan LeCary is president of Puppy Kitty New York City, a rescue organization. She says that means people have had to turn to more expensive options. You know, a lot of people were using private vets, but that's still a huge impact on smaller rescues who don't have funding, individual rescuers who pay out of their own pocket. And for those who can't afford to pay out of their own pocket, the lack of affordable spay-neuter appointments means cats are being fixed at a slower rate, which means more mothers. And that means more litters. I, I don't know if I could quantify that for you, but it just seems for this time of year, it's, it's really, um, have, it has increased. Bella Chang has been an independent rescuer for over 10 years. She's noticed the increase this year as well, even though we're only at the beginning of kitten season. And, and we are already panicked already, you know? Because when cats have kittens, those kittens have more kittens. And those kittens have more kittens. It's exponential. They don't go like three, four, five, six. They three, six, twelve. Like they go up like oh that. Oh, my God. It's not like two plus one plus one plus one. It's two, four, eight. 16, very, it goes up like that, so it's yeah. very bad. But the goal of Puppy Kitty New York City, along with many other rescue organizations, is to never say no to an animal in need. So rescuers are doing what they can, utilizing private vet clinics and spending more money on these services to fix as many cats as possible. And they're trying to care for every new kitten that's being born. Lucy Suchak, Columbia Radio News. That's it for this edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Executive producer Joanna Robin and senior editor Marta Guerrero ran things from Manhattan. Leading our staff of reporters was senior producer Chloe Wynn, with help from Lily Lopate, Anna Gordon, and John Edelman. Camille Vaughn brought us the national news headlines, and Nico Picciuto covered all things local. And the feature stories you heard were reported by our team, 
In Order of Appearance by John Edelman, Anna Gordon, Marta Bino, and myself, your host, Lucy Sujak. Our instructors, Ellen Horn and Camille Peterson, advised our staff. Blue Dot Sessions and Orange Free Sounds provided some of the music for today's show. I'm Marta Bino, your co-host today. You're listening to Uptown Radio, which is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. This is the official podcast from the Columbia Journalism School's Class of 2021. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, we want to thank our listeners for their continued support. Stay safe, and thanks for listening.